Well, again, take out your Bibles and turn together to Hebrews chapter 12. And we will today be reading verses 1 through 13. We are this week taking a bit of a break from our study in Genesis, uh, looking at uh, this section of Hebrews. Let's together read Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 1. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant inerrant word. Pay careful attention to the reading of it. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the the Lord disciplines the one He loves, and chastens every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seems best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. The grass withers, the flower falls, so the word of our Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this reading of your word. We pray, God, now for the preaching of your word. Be with this, your servant. We ask, O God, that we may come to understand this passage and that we would rightly apply it to our lives, that we may give glory to Jesus in it. We ask this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Well, you probably already know that suffering is a part of the fallen human condition. Suffering is a part of life. It is an experience that we face in times and in seasons of life. And even now, I know that there are a number of you who are suffering, whether it is with physical ailments, pains, diseases, or with pressures. Pressures at work, pressures at home, weariness, sickness, stress, 
a number of you are suffering. Why do we suffer? For the Christian, this is an even more pressing question. After all, we are God's children. And so we may ask, with Jeremiah, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do the treacherous thrive while the righteous of God suffer? Maybe another way to put it is, why is my unbelieving neighbor's life seem to be going so well and mine doesn't? What we should know right away is that suffering has a purpose in the life of the believer. Those who are the children of God, purchased by the blood of our Savior, will suffer in this life for a very real and important purpose. Not only that, but when we suffer, we are in good company. For the writer of Hebrews invites us to consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. The founder and perfecter of our faith endured the cross for the joy which was set before him. He was pleased to suffer for you and I that we might be saved and redeemed by him. And he is even now sitting at the right hand of God interceding for us. Therefore, as we suffer, as we consider our Savior's sufferings, we are to be encouraged so that we may not be so that we may not grow weary and faint hearted our suffer our savior rather suffered joyfully on our behalf so that we would have life and know knowing this then helps us to be steadfast but not only that our suffering in our suffering god is working in us And so as we look here at Hebrews chapter 12, we need to see that there is from the author, and we don't know who the author of Hebrews is, but there is a pastoral concern. It's important that you and I think rightly about our sufferings. Because the suffering of the Christian is an important tool which the Lord uses to chastise and to teach His people. In fact, even uh, we may even say that suffering itself is a kind of chastisement. It is a kind of discipline. It is a kind of tra- tra- training. But it is not necessarily punishment. Sometimes we think, well, I'm suffering because I've done something wrong. But no, that's not, that's not the way we should always be thinking about this. Contrary to what we may think, suffering in and of itself is not necessarily punishment. This was a lesson that Job's friends needed to learn, right? No, suffering is a kind of discipline which our Lord uses to make us more and more like Jesus. It is like a refining fire which burns off the spiritual chaff in our hearts, purifying and sanctifying us. Now, before we dive into our text, there are a few things that we should note. First of all, though there is perhaps an educational purpose to our suffering, that purpose, that educational purpose, is not always easy to discern in this life. Which is to say, there may be suffering which you endure that you will not understand the purpose of this side of glory. But even if we do not always know the divine purposes behind our suffering, we can know that we serve a loving God who is a father to us and is doing, uh, using our suffering for our good. 
So we, not, we will not always necessarily know the reason. Second, we should note that our text before us today only speaks of the sufferings of God's children. The author is not speaking about the suffering of the world in general. This is not the concern of the author here. The the writer of the Hebrews' purpose is to show that God uses a suffering in the life of the believer, uh, but not necessarily speaking to what the purposes of suffering of people in general are. There may be differing purposes. And so just understand that the focus here is on the sufferings of believers. He's not offering a broad philosophical explanation of the problem of evil here. His writing pours forth from a pastoral heart, a concern for God's people who are suffering. It's a heart which wants people of God to rightly understand the place of suffering. Third and finally, we should realize that the author of Hebrews is speaking specifically into a situation of his readers in the first century. Now, all Scripture is written for us, but not all of it is written to us with a 21st century believer in mind. There is an application for us, of course, but we should also understand that there isn't an audience, an audience, a church, who was suffering under persecution. He's speaking about a particular, or to a particular people in a particular place, dealing with particular issues. He's calling them to a healthy response to their difficult experiences, from which we too can benefit and apply to our own situations. Which is to say that though their experience differs from ours, the principles which we learn here apply to us as well. And so now we turn our attention specifically to Hebrews chapter 12, and you will notice a comparison. You can notice a comparison between the Christian life and a foot race or running. And the comparison is apt because running and the Christian life both involve perseverance and trials through pain. We read this, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So immediately before this, uh, as we examine, uh, if we were to look back to uh, chapter 11, we see what we call the, the, this, what was the cloud of witnesses. That is those that have gone before us. This is the faith hall of fame, as it were. Those who have run this race in previous generations, the saints of the Old Testament who had walked faithfully with the Lord, who had run the race of of the lot of life before us. They had faith in the Lord. And we are called to set aside every weight and sin which clings. Now the weight that we are to set aside primarily is fear. Because to walk in fear or to run the race as it were in fear is the opposite of walking in faith. Fear is a weight. Because when we fear man, we will not stand boldly in the truth, but instead we will shrink away. We will shrink away because we fear suffering. We fear what men can do to us. 
But the Christian life is a life of suffering. You and I have a weight of fear which must be set aside if we are to run the race with good effect. The second thing that we are to lay aside is sin. Sin, too, causes us to suffer. Of course, not all suffering is because of our particular sins, but we do suffer because of, uh, because of sin. In a general sense, we live in a fallen world. We live in a sinful world. And, of course, we have our own sin. And so we suffer. Living by faith, living without fear, because of our Savior Jesus Christ, this is how we are to run this race. We need to look to Christ, who himself suffered greatly. He was humiliated. He was humiliated in his birth, into a low condition, in his life, in his death. When it comes to suffering, beloved congregation, we are in good company. This fact provides us with some perspective. Verse 4 says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, the, the, the writer, of course, assumes that you are struggling against your sin. Though you may be suffering, and the people of the early church certainly suffered greatly under persecution, up to the point of this uh, being written, they had not yet suffered martyrdom. They had not yet shed their blood. They had not been put to death for the faith. Now, you and I live in a world which is increasingly hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reality is that the world hates Christ, and so they hate you and I. They hate the righteousness of the law. They want the law, they want to be a law unto themselves. They want autonomy, which is, in many respects, a great affront against God. And so since this is true for us in this post-Christian world, how much more is this true in the early church? The early church struggled against opposition. They were pressed in upon by unbelief on every side. Some of you now are being pressed in by unbelief. You're being mocked. You are held in derision because you're a Christian. The early church struggled against sin. The early church experienced trials. And so have you and I, but not to the point of shedding blood. And for the most part, our experience in 21st century America is one of verbal opposition. Somebody might say to you, oh, you're, you're one of those Christians. You believe in fairy tales, apparently. Most of us are maybe experiencing that, but the people of the Ozarks of Missouri probably aren't dying for the faith. Most of you aren't worried about your neighbors coming and killing you because you're a Christian. Nevertheless, you and I suffer. And the experience of the Lord's people is suffering. And so the Lord's suffering provides us some perspective. Look back at verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Our Lord Jesus Christ experienced an extreme extremity of hostility, didn't he? 
The Son of God was arrested. He was tried. He was nailed to the cross by the vilest of sinners. He endured the crucifixion at the hands of wicked men for your good and mine. He died on the cross so that you and I could have life, so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we might stand before the Father justified. Therefore, we do not have to grow weary or faint-hearted, for our Savior suffered. He suffered greatly. We can have hope because the Lord has died and has risen again for us. This is the good news of the Gospel, isn't it? That we don't have to live in fear. That that weight can be set aside. That our sins have been forgiven. Jesus has paid the penalty for your sin. Look again at verse 4. The author uses terms such as struggle and resist. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted. These two words are athletic terms which fit with the idea of running a race. There is is resistance. There's a struggle in that. The Christian life is like running a marathon. This is a race of perseverance, isn't it? This is a race that you want to give up on. But it also can be like a boxing match in which we contend through trials against an opponent, namely sin. Imagine if you were like you were in a boxing ring and your opponent is sin personified and you're boxing, you're struggling against this. We are getting some jabs in here and there. We're taking some hits along the way as we resist the opponent's attack. But as it says, so far our opponent has not yet drawn blood, but he may. He may. The Apostle Paul likewise describes the struggle in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Sin, the cosmic powers of darkness, are the enemies which are being fought. These are the cause of our hardships. These are the reasons for our sufferings. And these are both our own personal sin and the general fallen nature of this world. And this struggle that we have with sin, this boxing match, as it were, these are tools which God, our Father, our loving Father, uses to discipline us and to make us more like Jesus. In other words, there's a purpose to our suffering and our striving against sin. Suffering, trials, persecutions, these are all a kind of discipline. This section in Hebrews is is written to encourage the church, a church which is suffering, that this chastisement that is being experienced is for your good. It is for your spiritual good. It is a fatherly discipline. It is a discipline which is designed to grow you and to shape you that you may be more like Christ. Is this not the sweetest of fruit? 
This is the, the sweet yielding. So what is the purpose of suffering and miseries of this life? Why does the Lord discipline us like this? Because, beloved congregation, we are sons of God. In fact, the Lord addresses us as sons, does He not? Look at, look at verse 5. He asked, the, the, the writer asked this, Have you forgotten the exhortation which addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. You see, those who are united to Christ, those who have been purchased out of darkness and have been brought into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, have been made sons and heirs of the promise of God. You are a son. You are an heir. Romans chapter 8 Verse 15, For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Remember, that's the weight we need to set aside. But you have, been received, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. If you are in Christ, you are in union with Him by faith. And beloved, you are a son. You are an heir of the promises. The Lord Jesus Christ, through His death and resurrection, has made you, by faith, a son. You've been adopted. You are part of the family. You have the rights and privileges of sons. All those who are justified by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are called sons. God has granted to them the right to be partakers of grace by adoption. We are brought into the family. In fact, our sonship is grounded in Jesus. He has purchased us by His blood, making us objectively His. We belong to Him. And since this is the case, since you are now a son, then you should know that you will be disciplined by God the Father. Because good fathers discipline their sons. This is what good, good fathers do. The, the writer will point this out. The author's ex, exhortation addressing us as sons comes from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. But the key is found here in verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastens every son whom He receives. Well, the congregation, know this. Divine chastisement is a sign of your sonship. This is the goodness of divine discipline. The fact that the Lord chastens you is an indication of your your having been adopted into the family of God. In fact, as we read in James, trials are used to build our steadfastness in the faith. We're not to we are to be we are instructed then not to regard lightly the discipline of the Lord and not to be weary by his reproof. We're not to we're not to look at it and say, well, you know, this is this is not a big deal. No, the Lord is doing a work. You're his son, and he's disciplining you. We're not to say, no, I don't really I don't want this. We're not to grow weary. God teaches His people people through suffering because hardships are part of the Christian life. 
Now listen to Peter's description in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you all may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. It's amazing how often this concept of suffering and rejoicing in it comes up. And trials are not some sort of alien concept in your, in your life. Peter says, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes. Suffering is a part of the Christian life. And God has purposes in the sufferings of His children. He disciplines those whom He loves, just as an earthly father disciplines his children. And understand, these chastisements are not necessarily punitive. Often they're not. You and I don't necessarily suffer because God is punishing us. You and I suffer in this life in order to be made more like Jesus. And so we're exhorted not to take them lightly, not to grow weary, but to rejoice in the Lord. And why should we rejoice? Because we're being treated as sons. It may seem strange to think that God disciplines us through trials, and those trials and hardships are a sign that God loves you. It seems strange to our ears, doesn't it? Perhaps you're going through a trial right now and you're thinking, well, if this is true, if if Pastor Paul is right, then I kind of want God to love me a little less. God, you're loving me a little too much right now. Maybe you think that. But listen, this isn't the right way to think about it. You, You know that. You know that's not the way to think about it. You are being treated as a beloved son. Therefore, rejoice. Because these trials are being used in your life for your good. When we look at on to our brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering, then we too are to suffer with them. We're to bear their burden, as it says in Galatians, to, that we're to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. But when the body, when one part of the body is suffering, then we all suffer together. That's We're always all suffering, aren't we? As the body of Christ. But then we also rejoice together in this. We rejoice in our own sufferings. We bear with one another in each each other's sufferings. Because the endurance of disciplinary suffering is an essential aspect of the Christian life. This is how God is training us. Bearing our trials with patience and humility, trusting in the Lord, trusting in the Lord throughout, walking by faith. This will have the effect of demonstrating our sonship and in turn will continue to strengthen our faith. And isn't that really ultimately the goal? This is why we can say that Christian suffering is actually a good thing. The Lord brings chastisements in your life as a means to grow your faith and your reliance on Him. Haven't we seen this in the life of Abraham? How often, you know, he made lots of mistakes, but how often things would happen to him. The Lord used each of his sufferings in his life. This is true for us. The Lord does this 
along with the ministry of the Word and His Spirit. Now there are, of course, times when the educational purpose is not clear to us. I mentioned that in the beginning. But one thing that is always clear is that God is building your faith. Because here's the thing. You don't want the alternative. Verse 8. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. You see, the alternative to fatherly discipline from the Lord is to simply not be a son at all. God doesn't discipline those who aren't His children. Paternal discipline is an important aspect of of family life. And an absence of discipline is actually an indication of the father's rejection. The father who refuses to discipline his children does not really love his children. This is more obviously true in the ancient world than perhaps in our own. In the ancient world, discipline ran through the father, always through the father. If he did not discipline one of his children, it was because he had rejected them. They were no longer counted as one of his children. They were, in a sense, illegitimate children. Illegitimate children do not participate in inheritance. Just as an earthly father teaches and disciplines his children, so does God the Father. This is why we can definitely say that God's discipline and chastisement is good because it's coming from God who loves you because you're His Son. Now in order to hammer, further hammer home this point, the writer of Hebrews makes a further comparison of earthly fathers and heavenly fathers. And the point has been made that genuine sonship is seen by the experience of discipline. Now, observation can show that children who grew up with parents who disciplined them, who set clear boundaries and enforced those boundaries, grow up to respect their parents and to be self-disciplined. And failure to do so is not love, but rather neglect. It raises up children who resent their parents. And so if discipline causes us to respect our earthly parents, how much more is this true of our Heavenly Father? That's the point made in verse 9. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Man's chief end is to glorify God, to enjoy Him forever. In this sense, God is training His children for the enjoyment of life in its fullest sense, in enjoying Him. The goal of discipline in this case is not so that they may reach adulthood. That's what we're doing with our children, right? We're training our children so that they might become you know, functioning adults who, who discipline themselves. This is training for life. Parents will teach their children to look both ways before crossing the street, perhaps. Similarly, God's discipline protects us from the danger dangers of life, leads us onwards in the path of life. God's hand is guiding His people just as a parent guides their children. This should cause us to to revere, to glorify Him. Verse 10, that we may share in His holiness. This is what's going on, right? God is shaping us. God is molding us that we may be holy. This is the fruit that is to be yielded from this. When it comes to human parents, you know, we, we discipline them best we can, right? 
If you're, if you're a parent or anything like me, you know how many mistakes you've made along the way. We do the best we can. We, do, we, we try to discipline them according to God's Word. We're trying to raise them to be useful citizens, to become godly adults. God disciplines for our good, just as earthly fathers discipline, uh, just, just as earthly fathers discipline their children for their good. In the moment, though, discipline seems painful. I've never had one of my children uh, that I've disciplined afterwards say, "You know, God, uh, Dad, thanks for thanks for giving me that spanking. I, I really needed that." Um, sort of enjoy when those come along. None of my kids have ever said that to me. No one enjoys being chastised. It's painful. I trust that there's none of us who would enjoy a good flogging. Don't think I would. But as we look at those, if we look back on those sorts of experiences, we may appreciate the value of them. Right? You might look back on the discipline of your parents and think, you know, I'm really glad that they did that. It was painful the moment, but I'm glad that they did that. That which is painful for a moment, or perhaps even for a season of life, though in that moment is painful, is difficult, you don't enjoy it, will with time yield fruit in the life of the Christian. The writer calls it the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The seeds of righteousness are sown into our souls in affliction. And the harvest which God reaps in us is our growth in godliness. Growth in character which would not otherwise have been achieved. God is doing a work in you. He's gardening, as it were, and, and receiving the, fe- the, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. God is refining us through, fr- through affliction and fire. What the writer of Hebrews is describing here is the training of the Lord. God is training us in righteousness through the exertion of trials. And the fruit of our discipline is godliness. This is training like an athlete might go through in, in a sport. You know, in a sport, an athlete will subject his body to difficult, uh, difficulties in exercise. He will experience great pains. But if he's going to compete, he's going to have to get through the pain. The fruit of our of the discipline is godliness. The athlete trains in order that his body would be prepared for this competition. The Apostle Paul describes this with similar sports analogy in 1 Corinthians 9, 25. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. One uh, professional football coach put it this way, the job of a coach is to make men do what they don't want to do in order to be what they've always wanted to be. This is, this is a bit like what God is training us, us for, except God is training us to be everything that He wants us to be. Because this is what a loving Father does. This is the benefit of fatherly discipline. 
training in righteousness. And because this is true, because we have a good Father in heaven who trains us, who chastises and disciplines us, we can keep up the race, which is the Christian life. We can run the race. We can compete in this marathon of the Christian life, as it were. And so he calls us, verse 12, to lift your drooping hands and to strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. This passage here reinforces the exhortation to not lose heart. But what does this mean? Well, if you think about it, a runner who is running a race might come to a point of exhaustion. His arms may become slack. His knees may become weak. Perhaps he even feels like he's gone lame. You and I face times in the Christian life where we are just spent. You've experienced this, I'm sure. You get to a point where you say, you know what, I'm just done. I'm tired. I'm so weary. I've been beat up. Close to giving up because you feel so weak. And here the call is to lift up and strengthen. In other words, we are to respond to suffering with renewed resolve like an athlete engaged in a demanding contest. You are in the race of the Christian life. Difficulties and trials will come, but you have been trained by a loving Father. God has been training you. God has been preparing you. Keep running the race and prepare yourselves for the level portion of the trail. Brace your slack arms. Lift up your weakened knees. Keep running. Keep moving. Keep going toward the goal of the upper calling without wavering. Don't give up the race. This is what he's saying. Running is, after all, an endurance sport. I'm told that if you enjoy running, you must first press through the pain and the weariness because the strength to endure is in you. I'm told this. I've never enjoyed running. But the Christian life is somewhat like this. You have the strength to endure. But it's not because it's in you. But it's because it's from God. God has given you the strength through His Spirit to endure the race. And so, Christian, because you have the Holy Spirit, because you are a son, therefore, lift up your drooping hands. Brace up your weakened knees. Run the race with confidence, not in yourself, but in your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who does all things well and who has saved you by His own blood. In addition, the Christian is not to get off the straight and level path. This is what is said in verse 13. There is danger to be found off the trail. Injury may come. Rather, the Christian is to stay on the course which the Lord has set before you. For something, what may happen if you get off, an injury may come, you may become lame. To become lame is to be put out of joint, it's to become disabled, it's to be put out of the race. The writer of Hebrews is exhorting his readers to finish the race which God has set before you. Run with endurance on the path which God has given you. 
And the straight path is found in His Word. The Lord has brought you through great difficulty in order to train you and to refine you. Stay in His Word. Jesus has justified you by His blood. He continues to sanctify you by His Spirit and by His Word. And when the trials come, or things don't go well in your life, don't go wandering off the path. Don't don't go find other means to fulfillment or to answer the, the problems of your life. Be steadfast in God's Word. This exhortation echoes the teachings of our Lord, who said that the broad lane, followed by many, will lead to destruction. But the narrow path, the path of turning from sin, the path of turning to Jesus, leads to life. And so we consider all of this together, that the Lord brings upon us His hand of discipline, He does this to shape us in righteousness. He does this because we are sons. That we can see the real blessing which comes during trials in our life, which help us to run the race with endurance, to stay on the path the Lord has given to us. And that God is confirming our sonship, and He is training us in righteousness so that you and I can bear fruit in life. The chastisement of the Lord, beloved congregation, yield the sweet, sweet fruit of righteousness. In our suffering for the faith, we are strengthened and we persevere. And I know, I know many of you now are facing trials. Some may seem to you minor. Some are major trials that you're experiencing Some of you, perhaps, are even under the the Lord's hand of chastisement. None of us want to suffer. Nobody enjoys going through the trials. But be encouraged, congregation. Be encouraged. For the trials and difficulties which you are even now experiencing are being used for your good in your walk with the Lord, that you may be shaped to be more like Christ, that you may bear the sweet fruit of righteousness. And since we all want to grow in our faith, and these things being true, you might be wondering, well, okay, should I I then pray for suffering? Lord, bring me suffering. Or should we purpose to cause some suffering for ourselves? Well, the Lord's going to grow me in suffering. Maybe I should do some things so I could suffer more. I don't know why people think these things, but sometimes we do, don't we? Well, the short answer is, of course, no. The point isn't to try to make yourself suffer. The Lord does not call us to beat ourselves or to cause our own suffering. This would make no sense. The Apostle Paul warns actually against this in Colossians 2. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. We're not to cause our own suffering. No, the point is to see the value in your present suffering. You don't need to create more suffering. Beloved, you have, your, you have enough. The Lord is chastising each of us differently. But see the value in what the Lord is doing. 
Because from that is great yielding in your life. The fruit of righteousness, increased grace, as you walk by the Spirit with your Savior Jesus, who has set you free from bondage to sin. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the encouragement that though we may face trials and difficulties in this life, that you are using these things to our spiritual good, to nourish us, to strengthen us, to bear us up, that we may, as it were, as we were, as, as we were running, as it were, lift our drooping hands, embrace our weakened knees, that we may run this race with great effect, knowing that you are working in us and yielding fruit. Lord, we pray that we may persevere through the trials and that we may count it all joy when we do, for we can see your hand and your work upon us. We praise you and we thank you. Work in us, O God, in Jesus' name. Amen.